This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on Leap Day, February 29th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the, you might want to call it the bonus edition of the Noon Business Hour this year, but with this extra day and all. I'm Rob Hart. Hollywood is hoping the release of the movie Dune Part 2 will re-energize the box office. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, a key measure of inflation is out today. Let's take a closer look at it, plus the impact on the markets with Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Gus, thank you for joining us today. The PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the price index, uh, that's the Fed's key, uh, that, that's, the, that's the, the, the inflation number that basically the Fed, that's what they look at when uh, making policy decisions, Gus. And it said that uh, prices rose uh, four-tenths of a percent month over month, but on a year-over-year basis, 2.4%. Have they arrived at the 2% target? Uh, they are not there yet, but they're getting closer every month. Uh, I think the strong growth that we see in January, I think that was a one-off. Uh, I think we will see a smaller increase in prices in February. Uh, but certainly inflation is moving the way the Fed wants it to. Uh, I would expect that by the time we get into the late spring, early summer, the Fed will feel comfortable cutting interest rates as inflation continues to slow towards 2%. What was driving some of the gains uh, on a month-over-month basis, December? into January. Um, you know, a lot of it was on housing. So we saw big increases in rents. We saw big increases in the cost of home ownership. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a solid increase in health care spending. At the same time, we saw goods prices overall decline, including an almost 1% drop in, in car prices. So uh, I think that the, the increase in rents that we saw in the month, that's unlikely to be repeated. And I would expect to see softer inflation numbers uh, starting in February. There was also an unexpected jump in personal income going up 1% above the forecast of three-tenths of a percent. And is that entirely the Social Security cost of living adjustment kicking in? Uh, some of that was Social Security. Some of it was returns on investments. Uh, at the same time, though, there is a big uh, increase in tax payments in the month. So when you look at after-tax income growth, that was actually much softer. And, and once you account for inflation, it was basically flat over the month. Um, that being said, consumer incomes are going up because of the strong labor market. We're seeing good job growth, good wage growth. And I would expect that to continue throughout 2024. And uh, once again, that uh, inflation has shifted from uh, goods inflation a couple of years ago as the uh, supply chains were still trying to sort themselves out uh, coming out of COVID shutdowns, not only in America, but around the world. And it's moved over into the services sector. And are there any signs that maybe uh, we, that's easing on the services side of the equation? A little bit, but not nearly as much as, as the Fed would like. So I think the Fed wants to see a bit softer wage growth. That should translate into slower services inflation, and that will help drive inflation at 2% by late 2024. And is this simply a function of uh, Americans uh, confident in their job prospects, confident in the fact that they could get a job elsewhere, confident in the uh, amount of money that they've been able to, uh, 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 in, in the raises they've received from their employer, uh, going out to dinner more often and going on vacation with greater frequency? 
Absolutely. I mean, the job market is good. Wage growth is good. And then also, you know, Americans feel wealthier because the stock market is doing better and house prices are up. So uh, the drivers for consumer spending remain very solid in early 2024. Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today to talk about the uh, latest read on inflation in the PCE report. Coming up, a much-anticipated sci-fi sequel. Will it bring crowds back to movie theaters? Discussing the news affecting your money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The movie Dune Part 2 hits theaters on Friday, and the film industry is counting on it to reinvigorate the business after a very slow winter. Let's check in with Paul DeGarabedian, senior media analyst for the box office tracking company Comscore, based in L.A. Paul, thank you for joining us today. And I'm surprised at the degree to which uh, Dune uh, was not only rebooted but then turned into a successful science fiction franchise because the original movie from 1984 based on the Frank Herbert novel it had Kyle McLaughlin it had Sting it was a very young Patrick Stewart was in the in the 1984 version and it was a cult movie but who could have imagined that it would be now 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 that Hollywood is looking to this intellectual property to revive the movie theater business well Rob you, you make a great point because I remember when that uh, 1984 movie uh, landed in theaters all those years ago. And to think that uh, in 20, you know, 2024, we'd be looking at Dune 2 is sort of bringing back the box office after, as you set it up perfectly, uh, we've had a rather slow first couple of months at the box office with another Timothy Chalamet film leading the year so far, Wonka, earning $81.6 million in the calendar year of 2024 alone. But we're down 18% on box office heading into this weekend, year-to-date domestically. So we definitely need, need a hero. And I think Dune 2, with a projected opening of over $80 million, at, which is about double what the Denny Villeneuve 2021, October 22nd, 2021, opening of that Dune film, the reboot, essentially, so we're looking for this one to really reinvigorate the box office. Paul, I feel like every time we have this conversation, we think there's some sort of magic cure for what's been ailing the box office since uh, since since the COVID shutdowns in 2020. And I, I had this theory, and this is based on I recently finished uh, the the book about the history of Siskel and Ebert, and I fell down the the, the rabbit hole of watching old Siskel and Eberts as one does. And I realized like, that there were there were big movies in the 80s and 90s, ones that we talk about to this day, but then. There was that secondary level of movie that was there. That was basically, we're going to see this movie because we want to see a movie, and the alternatives, you know, renting a movie or, or watching from our, our home collection were not nearly as attractive as going to the theater. And it just seems like streaming just makes staying home and watching a movie that much more attractive because the quality is a lot better than VHS. Yeah, and that, that's a big part of it, Rob. And I read that book. I think it's called Opposable Thumbs about Siskel and Ebert. And yeah, what a, fantastic. What a great book. And yeah, it is different today because given the quality of the streaming content, the quality of the picture and the sound, uh, certainly it, it behooves the movie studios to make movies for theaters that are so impactful, that are so appealing, that it just you get up off your couch and go to the multiplex. Once you're there and you see a movie like Dune 2 
part two on the big screen. There's nothing like it right now. Bob Marley, One Love is doing well in theaters, Mean Girls. But we definitely want to get this thing ramped back up. Dune 2 is going to do that. Then we have Kung Fu Panda 4, Ghostbusters, Frozen Empire, Godzilla and Kong. The first Omen is coming, The Fall Guy, and a bunch of other films as we head towards the summer. So the big screen is here to stay, but certainly uh, you just have to have movies that are so appealing that they they bring you away from that small screen and get you to go out to the big screen experience. And you got to run these things through fairly quickly because back in the day, I know we've talked about this before, but Jurassic Park in 1993, that was in the theater for an entire year. It was it was in, in the theaters for the entire summer. And then once it started to run out of gas from a box office perspective, it went to the second run theaters and ran until late summer of 1994. You don't have that anymore. Yeah, the the films that had that long-term playability, you don't see that very often. Although uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer both played for many, many weeks. But you're right. Back in the day, you could have a film, a popular film, playing for a year in theaters. But remember, back then, movies didn't open in as many theaters. So in today's world, they get that big blast, that big opening weekend. But, you know, you want to have films that appeal to audiences every week because it's a momentum business. We've lost a bit of that. When you have the same movie at number one for weeks on end, that's good for that movie, not good for the business. So I think we're going to actually, I think the start of the box office year happens today with the you know Thursday night previews of Doom Part 2. And then we're going to, I think, see a very strong box office heading forward. But it's taken us a while to get there, Rob. Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for the box office tracking company Comscore, based in Los Angeles. Coming up next, Weight Watchers is dealing with a game-changing loss. Information to make cash and save cash. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Oprah Winfrey stepping down from her role at Weight Watchers, sending the company's stock plummeting. Let's dig into the story with uh, help from Jennifer Waters, Chicago-based business reporter. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. Now, when Oprah joined Weight Watchers, the, the board of directors in, in 2015, bought a 10% piece of the company. It was seen as a lifeline, a, a shot in the arm to a company that was struggling back then. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and she did help. And she, she actually was very involved in the company for some time. I mean, where she would hold hold these like Zoom meetings, you know, with, with Weight Watcher members and talk to them about, you know, the shame, the body shaming that she felt and, you know, the yo-yo dieting that she's talked very openly about and talked to them about, you know, how, you know, this was a habitual thing in terms of how you have to change your life, you know, how you have to eat and exercise and all that. So, so she was a really big part of it. Their stock soared probably in about, I think it hit its highest point, uh, June of 2018. It was at about a hundred bucks. And then it just started to drop again in about 2019, mid-2019, kind of, you know, seesawing a little bit. But, boy, just fell off the charts. <laughs> I was going to say got a pounding. Um, <laughs> um, you know, in 2021, 22. And so this, so right now the stock, as we speak, is trading at 2 bucks and 92 cents. 
So, I mean, think about how, you know, that what kind of downfall that is. And, and, and what is what is this? How does this speak to the, the power of having a, a celebrity on your board of directors? I mean, as you mentioned, you know, Oprah Winfrey's uh, struggles and vulnerability regarding her own weight, you know, are legendary. I mean, thinking back to her yeah. show when she pulled out that wagon uh, full of the, the fat representing the weight that she lost. I mean, yeah, that was that, a very powerful visual yeah. uh, 30 yeah. years ago. And, 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 and you bring her into the into the Weight Watchers board of directors, and it seems like a match made in heaven. But if that celebrity decides to move on, that's harmful to the brand. Yeah, exactly. Well, it can be very harmful. And um, but but I mean, to to Weight Watchers though, it's not it's not just. I mean, obviously her stock. And then now I can say it did get pounded yesterday and today, but um, it was already falling before that, and so she was probably losing. You know, because she put in about, I think, uh, $43 million in 2015 for it, which was about a 10% stake, which is how she got on the board. But, you know, now, I mean, her her investment in it has, has plunged. So that might have even been part of it. Like, you know, sure, she's a billionaire, but, you know, people don't stay that rich if they invest poorly. So that might have been part of it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of these celebrity endorsers, I mean, you might have heard, too, that Jack O'Neill um, got, is off the Papa John's board. And you think about what Papa John's has been through with its different celebrities. You know, remember when Peyton Manning was its, its promoter? He owned a bunch of Papa John's. Um, and then remember when Shatner, like, kind of got, who was the uh, founder of the company, got thrown out? because of some racist comments he made. So when you have somebody, and and what they brought in after all that stuff with Shatner was Shaquille O'Neal, who really helped aid that changed the diversity within the the culture of the company, but then helped bring the company back up and from, you know, this down pit that it, that Shatner had brought it to. So yeah, they can be very, very important pieces of the, of the puzzle of any company. Jennifer Waters, Chicago-based business reporter, thank you for joining us today. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, the latest on the humanization of robots. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon, I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Mayor Johnson is establishing an economic growth advisory committee for one of the city's fastest-growing neighborhoods. Both leading candidates for president will discuss immigration while at the U.S.-Mexico border today. Technology Thursday, a startup company building robots that can perform dangerous and undesirable jobs gets a big boost. How a major transfer of wealth will likely make millennials the richest generation in history. Business, the markets are mixed right now. The Dow is down 30 points. The Nasdaq is up 99. S&P 500 up 16. 36 degrees right now in Chicago under mostly sunny skies at 1231, topping our meeting at the half, uh, uh, topping our news at the half hour. An annual meeting of downtown Chicago business leaders, Mayor Brandon Johnson speaking this morning, made an announcement that could mean very good things for the city's fastest growing neighborhood. This spring, my administration will establish a downtown economic growth advisory committee that will provide business leaders, organizations, and key stakeholders with a direct line of communication with my office and all of the city's departments. 
What does this mean for the future of downtown Chicago? WBBM's Brandon Eisen speaking with stakeholders and will share their thoughts coming up after 1 o'clock. Both President Biden and former President Trump will visit the southern border today, putting the focus on immigration. President Biden and his likely GOP challenger both head to the southern border today. The president says he'd been planning to visit Texas and will be in Brownsville. What I didn't know is... uh My good friend apparently is gone. Donald Trump will be about 325 miles away in Eagle Pass along the corridor seeing the biggest number of illegal crossings. The dueling visits are a sign of immigration's central role in the election, with both men looking to take advantage. The president's expected to hammer Republicans for tanking a bipartisan border security bill on Trump's orders. They consistently get in the way of what the president is trying to do to get more resources. Spokeswoman Corrine Jean Pierre says the president will meet with border protection agents and others. Trump's expected to lay out his own updated immigration proposals, including expanding the controversial travel ban from his presidency. Sagar Magani, Washington. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are mixed today. We welcome in Jim Awad, Senior Managing Director, Clearstead Advisors in New York. Jim, thank you for joining us today. Another inflation report, the Fed's preferred number, the PCE index, the preferred uh, personal consumption expenditures index uh, out today, which shows that inflation continues to head towards that 2% target, but uh, it's, it's not a linear process, is it? No, it's going to be bumpy. Uh, You're getting deflation on the good side and sticky uh, inflation on the services side. Uh, And that's going to take uh, that's going to continue for a little while because the uh, the job market is cooling a bit, but strong. uh, And uh, wage growth is cooling a little bit, but strong. So this is this is going to be uh, a long slog down to the two uh, percent uh, rate. But as long as you're making progress on a on a running three month basis continually, I think uh, the the consensus among the Fed, if you listen to them now, is that uh, sometime around uh, the middle of the year uh, you'll get uh, you'll, you'll start to get some moderate uh, interest rate declines. Uh, they, they they said three in, in the last um, uh, dot plot. They they may reduce that with the uh, March dot plot. But let's say you're going to get uh, between one and three moderate moderate uh, interest rate declines. Meanwhile, the uh, income numbers today were strong. So the uh, the uh, the Atlanta Fed this week again upped their estimate for growth in the first quarter to over three uh, percent. Profits came in uh, stronger than expected in the fourth quarter. Uh, the final estimates are somewhere between 7 and 10 percent. So if you have an economy that continues to grow, profits that continue to grow, uh, inflation that continues to ebb and interest rates that gradually get down, that's a pretty good cocktail for equity prices. Now, when we're talking about uh, inflation and that 2 percent target, uh, on a year-over-year basis, uh, the headline PCE number is 2.4 percent, and, and the Fed is looking for 2 percent on the button. They're not looking for 2.4. This is not uh, – it's not horseshoes. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't pay to be close. You have to be there. Well, you don't have to be there for the – they've said very clearly they, they, they don't have to wait to 2 percent. Uh, to start to cut rates. What they have to have is a conviction that the path to 2% is, is sustainable and consistent. So you could, you could be running 2, 3, 2, 4 on the way to 2, and they can ease the financial pressure just a little bit. And we're not talking about uh, uh, 1% decreases in interest rates. You're talking about quarter percent decrease in interest rates. So it's the direction that counts. 
uh, not necessarily the uh, the absolute magnitude. And then very quickly, Jim, uh, you mentioned that the Atlanta Fed, their GDP now cast is running above 3% right now. So we're, we're uh, experiencing 3% economic growth. And is it possible to have 2% inflation in a 3% economic growth environment? We're going to find that out. Uh, this is sort of the, the miraculous conception where you get good growth and declining inflation, declining interest rates. Uh, but it's a work in process. I mean, there is a school of thought that says that if the economy continues at this pace, you may end up getting a reacceleration in inflation. Uh, there's not an evidence of that now, but it's possible. So you always have to think as an investor, what could go wrong? That's one of the things that could go wrong. A sudden, a sudden decrease in consumer spending is something that could go wrong. And then there are lots of geopolitical risks that could go wrong. But what you, what you know here and now uh, leads you to believe that the, the, the cocktail remains a positive one. Jim Awad, Senior Managing Director, Clearstead Advisors in New York. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, upping the human factor when producing a robot. Compounding your interest with an economy of words. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon we're putting a spotlight on efforts to give robots more of a human touch. We welcome in Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group and Professor of Advanced Media in Residence at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Shelley, thank you for joining us today, and this seems like an inevitable evolution. People are working on AI, people are working on robots that can run and move, and it seemed like just a matter of time before these two technologies are merged. Absolutely. Look, I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, you, you know, humanoid robots have all kinds of bizarre connotations. We have lovable ones like C-3PO. We have, you know, evil ones. And the, the science fiction is, is replete with examples of both. Uh, the Isaac Asimov uh, movie, I, Robot comes to mind immediately. So look, at the end of the day, there's a, people are starting to raise money. Figure AI just, just raised $675 million. Uh, and Jeff Bezos is in it and NVIDIA is in it. Microsoft open AI is in it. And what are they going to do? They're going to make humanoid robots. And uh, the figure 01, it mo moves like a human. It looks like a human. It talks and walks like a human. So is it human? No, it's a robot. Is it going to be useful? Uh, I don't know. I think everybody's one, everyone is going to be the first one on their block to have a figure, you know, robot. Maybe, maybe not. But it's coming, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And, and some of the applications for the humanoid robot include using them in manufacturing, shipping, logistics, warehousing, and retail uh, in spaces that are having a hard time finding human workers because the human workers are getting better jobs elsewhere. But, um, and, 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 and there's, there's, a good practical application for them, especially in warehouses, because I remember from my warehouse days, uh, you couldn't lift anything over 70 pounds because it could hurt you and you could have the robot lift the heavy box instead. Yeah, I think. Right. But, you know, there are exoskeletal tools you can use to give someone who's 95 pounds and can't lift up, you know, a paperweight. Uh, the strength of, of 100 humans. So, uh, you know, there's also forklifts. I mean, at the end of the day, the idea of a bipedal robot that looks like a human 
it can navigate certain human spaces because the world around us has been built ergonomically for us. So chairs are for people with, you know, bipedal people. So are ladders. So are steps. Like we, we sort of built a world around our ability, uh, you know, human physiology. Now, do we need bipedal robots to do this? Uh, are there better ways with a four-legged robot, like some of the stuff from Boston Dynamics with the, you know, the robo-dog that can kind of, uh, where the limbs go in every direction? It's creepy to watch this thing navigate, you know, slippery slopes and what have you. That's a better form factor for most of the things that are odd-shaped and strange, and actually it has more capabilities than a bipedal robot would for mobility and flexibility. So this thing about, you know, making a humanoid robot is more about us, making these robots in our own image. There's something about that that is interesting. Is it the best way? I don't know. But it, nothing's gonna, like I said, nothing's going to stop this. Everybody wants their own C-3PO. And, I, you know, <laughs> we're about to see if people want to really, if they'll put their money where their mouth is, right? Well, since we're, we're, having, since we're having the science fiction and ethics discussion, I know in, in previous AI conversations, you have said that AI, the large language, language models that a lot of businesses are using right now, are simply word calculators. They are not right. going to gain sentience. They're not going to gain consciousness. Nope. They're just designed to do a very specific thing. But if yeah. you merge AI... And, and the humanoid robot, I mean, you talked about iRobot, I'm going to bring up the movie Short Circuit. Eventually, sure. you're going to develop a robot that's going to refuse to turn itself off. And what do you do in that situation? So I tell you what, there's a box called the useless machine. All it does is turn itself off when you want it on. Um, th this is not going to be one model. The, this is going to be a, a, what they call an autonomous agent or stacked models. You're going to have a neural network uh, or a convolutional neural network that works a lot like the, 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 a little bit like the human mind, where it's going to try and understand from reinforcement learning what you like, what you don't like, what's good and what's bad. It'll have probably a large language model to help it speak or some kind of natural language processing or understanding. There are many, many component systems that will go into making a robot that you can interact with, that understands the world it's in, can navigate, can walk, can if you push it, it doesn't fall down. There's a lot of different AI systems that are going to go into this. It's complicated. It's going to need power supplies. It's going, to, it's going to need all kinds of things. Like, it's almost like we don't have time to talk about all the things that we have to go into this. Yeah, we're going to get there. The question is, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Is that really what the market's asking for? And the only way we're going to find out is if they bring it to market and someone's willing to write a check for it, then we're going to know. Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, thank you for joining us today. It's 60 Minutes of Financial Planning. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. There are changes in how people are transferring their wealth, and millennials are poised to become the biggest beneficiaries. Let's learn more from Tony Orgoric, founder of Orgoric Wealth Management in Buffalo. Tony, thank you for joining us today. And, and, and is this simply a function of a lot of baby boomers are going to pass on and then pass on their wealth to their kids? or uh, can they pass along their wealth uh, before they shuffle off this mortal coil? Hey, Rob, you're like a poet, this mortal coil. <laughs> I love that. I, I have I a million you, euphemisms for death, Tony, if you have the time. <laughs> I got croaking. <laughs> Listen, the world has changed, and it's fundamentally different than when the parents were millennials' ages. As an example, uh, we take a look at uh, cost of child care. If you have one or two kids... That's another mortgage. Speaking of mortgages, uh, today, uh, because of a number of factors, it's not possible for a lot of young people 
to be able to purchase houses. Uh, you know, and that's another issue, which means they cannot build wealth. And third, um, you know, a lot of corporations have gotten rid of pensions and now they're defined contribution plans. And, you know, employees are just more mobile than they were years ago. So it's a fundamentally different world than it was 30, 40 years ago. And I do think a lot of these people really need help just to get back to even, you know, with where their parents were at their age. And how does this stack up to, you know, we're talking about a $90 trillion wealth transfer uh, between over the next 20 years. And so how does this stack up to the wealth transfer between the uh, uh, the passage of, of most members of the greatest generation over to their baby boomer kids? Well, you know, again, uh, when you had the greatest generation back then, those were the first people that were, uh, you know, really qualifying for Social Security and and, and getting some sort of uh, government benefit. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of wealth transfer back then. I mean, if you just go back to golf, you know, you look at Jack Nicholas, he was playing for $25,000 purses, you know, back then in the, in the 60s. And today they're, you know, I think they're up to $4 million dollars. Um, for tournaments, and they're not even necessarily majors. So the world has changed fundamentally, and I do think that you've got a lot of home appreciation right now. Uh, People can extract some of that, and I think a lot of times also estate planning came down to when somebody died, that's when the assets move. And today I think there's a real need for parents to be able to help their kids if they can without negatively impacting the parents' retirement. I think they really should give that some some serious consideration. And then, what does this mean for the millennial generation? Uh, Twenty years from now, uh, flush with uh, tens of trillions of dollars in uh, in, in in paper wealth. Uh, I don't think they're going to have tens of trillions of dollars of paper wealth because you know the world really does change. Um, there was a wonderful article in the in the New York Times. I think it was yesterday that. Uh, uh, Chinese auto companies are going to be a wrecking ball for the big three. Uh, there's going to be um, a lot of change with AI. I mean, the world's just a very, very dynamic place right now. And, you know, some of that wealth is going to be evaporating. And uh, cost of college, I mean, everything is going up. So, you know, it's like you've got more money, but guess what? Everything else is going to be costing a lot more 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Tony Ogorek, founder of Ogorek Wealth Management in Buffalo. Thank you for joining us today.